All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. We're so glad you are here. To all of you who are in the room with us right now and all of you who are watching online, thanks for joining us today. If you're new, my name is Adam, one of the pastors here at First Free. That was Steve. He's another one of our pastors. And we are just so excited to get to be together, worship God together. Um, and it is, it is a great thing to be able to do this. I, I just loved looking at that Mud Run video too. That looked like a whole lot of fun. How many of you want to go through that course? Anybody like that? How many of you really don't want to go through that course? course. That's not for me. Yeah, I understand. That makes sense. Um, It is really good to be back up here and preaching again. It's been a couple weeks for me. I've taken a lot of time to prepare for our next several series. So we've got a series, a couple weeks coming up where we're going to be talking about vision and values for the church coming out of the pandemic. And then we've got a series where we're going to to talk about justice and the Bible and social justice and and equality, uh, racism, critical race theory. We're going to talk about a lot of things in that series. So you will not want to miss that. We've got some special guest speakers. We're going to join us for that as well. And then we're going to get into our First Timothy series again, which we had to postpone last year because of the pandemic. And that's going to touch on issues like women's roles in the church and what does that look like and how are we going to do that here? So those things take an incredible amount of preparation. I've been learning a lot going through the preparation for it, but it's so good to be back here with you talking about the parables. Um, and I do want to get into the parables a little bit, but before I do, I just want to remind you that we have a group's pastor candidate who is coming in for some forums this weekend and also a vote. And we are presenting him to you with a recommendation of our pastoral staff and our elders uh, as a group's pastor candidate for us as a church. So if you can be here next week for the vote, please make sure you do that. We do need to get a quorum to make that happen. And of course, we'll have an online option as well if you cannot physically be here so that you can vote and be a part of that. If you haven't already seen it, there is a video interview that I did with Nick Parker and his wife Casey, and you will want to check that out. It kind of gives you a little bit of an overview of their life, and you'll learn more about them. If you're signed up for Senior Pastor Updates at efree.org slash updates, you will get, you've already gotten that. If you are not, you can go to efree.org slash candidate later today, and you'll be able to watch that video there. And we are doing more interviews like that. We've got a podcast out. If you haven't heard of it yet, it's called the Five Questions Podcast. We will send out emails to senior pastor updates anytime we launch a new episode. We've done interviews with Bob and Deb Richter and Alan Heisel and uh, Andrew and Amber Miller. We've got more coming up with Carrie Turwelp, our communications director. And actually, this last week, I got to interview Mike Shields. He's the new superintendent for the EFCA in our area and just a fantastic guy with a great message for the church. So if you're not signed up, you'll want to get that. You can also get it on podcast apps and YouTube and all those different good places. One other thing I wanted to mention before I got into the message today as well is that Uh, This summer, at the end of July, we have the privilege of welcoming the president of the EFCA to speak here at First Free. So he will be here at the end of July, Kevin Complin, just a great guy. You're not going to want to miss a week of the rest of the year, okay? So just cancel your vacation plans. You'll want to be here every single Sunday. If for some reason you can't get out of that timeshare or whatever, then you can tune in online and you'll be a part of the service that way. All right, we're in the parables today. We've got this series that we're going through, learning the teachings of Jesus. And so much of Jesus' teaching was done through parables. And most of us are familiar with these stories, but maybe we don't understand the real meaning behind them. What was Jesus actually trying to teach? And that's so important to 
understand. There's a lot of wrong teaching out there on the parables. There are a lot of people that have have looked at the parables and they've ignored the context and they've ignored the history and they've tried to pull out something that maybe sort of fits to to prove a point or to, to, to advance some agenda that they have that isn't necessarily an accurate reflection of what Jesus was actually communicating to a first century audience. So what we've been trying to do is go back and look at the history, go back and look at the context and the surrounding verses and see what is what can we think this means? What do we have a a really strong um, understanding of what this means based on the historical context and the textual context? We want to be followers of Jesus. So we've got to understand Jesus' teachings. And so much of Jesus' teachings are in the form of parables. And we call ourselves followers of Jesus. But practically speaking, we're really more followers of Paul. You know, Paul wrote most of the New Testament, and he's where we get most of our theology and our Christian living uh, instructions on. And Paul says he got it from Jesus, so it's still ultimately following Jesus, of course. Uh, But the reality is, in this series, we're trying to go right back to the source, right back to Jesus himself, and say, what did he teach, and how can we follow that? And Paul and Peter and John and all these other authors of the New Testament, they built on Jesus' teachings and they shared what he shared with them. They passed it on to us. And sometimes you will see that later on in the New Testament, there is sort of a callback to a parable of Jesus or there's something that helps us better explain a parable of Jesus where Jesus taught something in parable form and then later his disciples expanded on that and gave us more information. We'll see some of that today. Before we dive in this morning, I just want to take a moment and pause and try to let go of all the distractions of this week. And hopefully the worship time helped you do that as well. What a great time of worship we had today. This is not a casual thing we're about to do. We're about to open up the very words of God, the creator of the universe. This is a big deal. So let's pray and ask him to give us wisdom. Father, as we open your word today and study it, I pray that you would teach us how you want us to live and how you want us to view you. Help us to have some fresh insight today into understanding you. We know that we'll never be able to fully comprehend you. You are so much bigger than anything we could ever understand. But God, I pray that today you will just give us a fresh glimpse of you. Help us to understand you a little bit more so that we can have a better relationship with you. And so that we can live in the way that you want us to live. God, I pray that you would teach us something today out of your word, through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, have you ever been tempted to give up on something? To just throw in the towel and say, I'm done, that's it, I can't take it anymore? I was reading this week about a guy named Mike Tyson boxer. Most of you are probably familiar with Mike Tyson, right? And back in 2005, he had a match against a Irish heavyweight, Kevin McBride. And it was Tyson versus McBride. And everybody thought that Tyson was just going to wipe the floor with him. I mean, McBride didn't stand a chance. McBride, basically up to this point, he had had about 30 or so fights, mostly against lower level opponents. Every time he played up, he lost. And so everybody thought that Tyson was just going to wipe out McBride. In fact, one of the commentators at the beginning of this fight said, this is going to be a short and painful night for Kevin McBride. And that did not turn out to be the case. McBride took all the punches in stride and he gave some good ones of his own. And Tyson was ahead on the scorecards by the end of round six, but he had run out of gas. He couldn't stay in the fight any longer. McBride had endured everything and outlasted him, which Tyson wasn't known for being a long 
being able to go a lot of rounds. And Kevin basically outlasted Tyson and he gave up. Mike Tyson gave up before coming out for the seventh round and Kevin McBride won the match. Afterward, Tyson was given an interview and he said, I don't think I have it anymore. I've got the ability to stay in shape, but I don't got the fighting guts anymore. I'm just fighting to take care of my bills, basically. Now, I'm sure we have all had moments where, like Tyson, we just felt like giving up. And there are all sorts of things that we might experience in life with our jobs and careers and family and relationships and all sorts of things that we might engage in, ministry activities, where we feel like giving up. And to be honest, sometimes that's the right thing to do. Sometimes there are enough signs that it's, okay, we need to step back from that. But other times we need to push forward. And especially when it comes to something that involves our trusting in God, And our faith in him, no matter what we're going through right now in life, we're going to keep trusting in God. That is something we can never give up on. Whatever struggle I am facing today, Jesus, I trust you to get me through it. God, I know that you've figured out the end already. And I'm going to keep believing in you and trusting you. And that's going to be reflected in my life and in my actions and my thoughts, my words, even though I'm going through a really difficult moment right now. When we go through troubling times in our life, we are tempted to give up to quit, to throw it away. And I'm not necessarily, I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm talking about just walking the way God wants us to walk, being people of faith, continuing to trust and have faith in God no matter what is happening right now. That is something we can't quit on. And that's what our parable is about today. It's in Luke chapter 18. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there, Luke chapter 18. You can also use the YouVersion Bible app and you'll find us there or efree.org slash Bible. You can find it there if you want to. Luke is um, going to tell us the point of this parable right up front. And I love it when they do that. I wish all parables would come with a verse at the beginning that says, here's the point of this parable. Wouldn't that make things a lot easier? There'd be a lot less interpretation to have to do. At least you would think so. But ironically, even though Luke is going to give us the point of this parable right up front, it doesn't actually make it that much easier to understand. It's still fairly confusing. In fact, many scholars have actually suggested alternate purposes and messages for this parable than what Luke gave us in the scripture itself, which I I don't know how you get there, but somehow some of them think that they've got it figured out better than Luke. We're going to take Luke at his word. He's going to give us the point of this parable right at the beginning, and then we're going to walk through the parable, take it apart, and try to understand it. Luke chapter 18, verse 1 says this. One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. So that's what the parable is about. You should always pray and never give up. Here is the story. There was a judge in a certain city, Jesus said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, He will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Do you see some of the confusion that could come out of this parable? 
Luke says that it's about persistent praying and not giving up. The woman gets what she wants by nagging the judge endlessly. Is that what we're supposed to learn from? The judge does the right thing before the wrong reasons. And Jesus says we should learn from the judge. Is that what we're supposed to take away from this? And then at the end, Jesus questions how many people he will find with faith when he returns. This really is a challenging parable. And we're going to try to break apart the different elements to see if we can piece together what is Jesus talking about here. The first character we encounter is the judge. The judge, Jesus says, neither feared God nor cared about people. And that probably sounds bad to you, but it really sounded bad to the people Jesus was talking to. The fact that he didn't fear God meant that he couldn't make just judgments. Those two things went together from a Jewish perspective. To be able to make just judgments mean you had to fear God, not people. You had to want to please God, not people. You had to fear that he was going to judge you if you didn't judge other people correctly. And so you had to fear God, not other people. Chronicles gives us this in 2 Chronicles to the judges. These are the instructions. Always think carefully before pronouncing judgment. Remember that you do not judge to please people, but to please the Lord. He will be with you when you render the verdict in each case. Fear the Lord and judge with integrity. For the Lord our God does not tolerate perverted justice, partiality, or the taking of bribes. That is the instruction that was given to the judges in Israel. So the idea that Jesus is saying this judge didn't fear the Lord or care about people meant he must not be giving good judgments. He's in this for himself. He's not making the right choices. And this is good advice for all of us, actually. A lot of the problems that we have would be solved if we feared God instead of other people, right? If we wanted to please God instead of other people, that would make a lot of our decisions a whole lot better. When our goal is to please other people, we will do things that may bring some success in the short term. But when our goal is to please God and we make choices to please God, we have satisfaction for the long term. There are many examples we could point to about this. But as I was thinking about this last night, one that just popped into my head was Bill Gates. Bill Gates, from a worldly perspective, for a long time has been viewed as an incredibly successful man, the world's richest man, dedicated so much of his money to philanthropy and to doing good around the world. From an outside perspective, just looked like, wow, this guy is pleasing all the people for the most part. I know there's some naysayers. Um, microchips and all that. But Bill Gates, from a worldly perspective, very successful person. What happened within the last month? Not only did his whole world fall apart, but we actually found out that for years, for decades, his world has been falling apart. Why did it happen? It happened because he has been making choices for decades that did not please God, but they were to please himself or please other people. The types of people he hung out with, the people he asked for advice, the decisions that he made, some of the contracts that he got into. He really made a mess of his life and it's been carefully hidden from the outside world until just this last month when everything kind of fell apart. And now we see, wow, what what a wreck. What a mess. What a messed up life. And many of us, you know, at different times might think, wow, I'd love to be that guy. That yacht, that house, you know, uh, whatever you want to buy, you just get it. You know, you read some of the articles about him from from 10 years ago, and you're just like, wow, he is living the dream, and now we know. No, he wasn't. He was making choices that did not please God. And so in the long run, it causes all kinds of problems. Another way to put this would be to say, do the right thing even if it's unpopular. 
That's basically what Chronicles was telling judges to do. Do the right thing, even if it's not going to please people, even if it's not going to make them happy with you. If there's one idol that I think has captured our culture more than any other right now, it's the, it's the idol of popular opinion. Worshiping what the majority of people seem to be thinking or what's making the way on social media. It's shocking how quickly many, many people, including Christians, will jump on board a, a popular movement without really taking the time to evaluate and see, is this true? Is this based on evidence? Is this just? Is this right? Does this align with Scripture? We tend to think that if something's popular, it must be good. That's why when I go to buy something, the first thing I do is I look at the reviews. Is this a three-star product? Eh, no thanks. Is this a four-and-a-half-star? That might work. Let me scroll down and see what the actual reviews say. Wow, 10 one-star reviews right at the top telling me how this thing broke within three months. No thank you. I want to see what popular opinion is, but we have this idea sometimes that if something's popular, that makes it good. And the problem is popular opinion just shifts from day to day. What was popular and approved a month ago was not necessarily popular and approved today. It adjusts all over the place because popular opinion is based on opinion and not truth and not justice. One day popular opinion was to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem with palm branches as a king. And a short time later, popular opinion was to shout, crucify him. We cannot base what we believe and do on popular opinion. The Bible teaches us that we are to be fair and just. That means we have to care more about truth than opinions. And this was especially important for judges. Many times the Bible says that the truth needs to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In fact, Jesus says that in Matthew 18, the evidence of two or three witnesses is necessary even in the church for establishing whether something is true. In other words, you can't just take someone's opinion or experience as being absolute fact. You have to look into it. You have to dig into it. You cannot have justice without truth. You can't have truth without evidence, without witnesses. But popular opinion is almost never based on evidence. So it often gets justice and truth wrong. And that's the problem with the judge in this story. He doesn't care about truth. He doesn't care about evidence. He doesn't ask any other questions. He ignores her requests. He's not even looking into them. He probably knows that she's right, but he doesn't care because he doesn't fear God. He cares about people, what people think about him. Maybe he's getting a kickback from some people on the other side. Whatever it is, he's not making good judgments because he doesn't fear God, and so he's not judging with integrity, and Jesus calls him an unjust judge. Let's talk about the widow. What can we learn about the widow in this story? The second character. If the judge enjoys a position of power and superiority and prominence, the widow is in just the opposite situation. Today, she would have all sorts of legal protections. She would have fair, equal treatment under the law, at least in this country. But back in that day, in this part of the world, widows were in a very, very difficult situation. They did not have an easy life at all. And by the way, if you're picturing an older woman when you think of widow, that is not what Jesus' audience would have pictured. Women in ancient um, Israel, they would tend to get married very, very young in their early teens, and, and lifespans were much shorter, so it just condensed the whole life down. And people are dying much earlier back then. They're getting married much earlier. A lot of husbands, young husbands, would die and leave a lot of young widows. And so a widow in this case could be a woman in her 20s, her 30s, her 40s. That, that might be kind of what they would think of in this case. But they were not often well cared for as widows. In this society, everything was tied to your husband. It's possible that she would be cared for by her husband's estate. 
but more often than not, there wasn't a lot of money to survive on after a husband passed away. If they went back and lived with their family, all of the money that the husband's family paid to her family for her to be a wife to their son had to be returned. That was a thing they did back then. still happens in some parts of the world where the groom's family gives money to the bride's family as sort of payment for the bride. But if she goes back and lives with her family, all of that money, which has probably already been spent, has to be given back. So if she goes and lives with a husband's family, oftentimes she would be treated as a servant. And she would basically just have to come in and do whatever they wanted. And it was sort of like a Cinderella stepmother kind of situation there. Not the best situation in the world. And many times, widows were actually sold as slaves to pay off a family debt. It was not an easy thing to be a widow in the ancient world. The book of Lamentations actually speaks about Jerusalem this way, as a widow. It says, Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she is now a slave. The widow in our story has been wronged by someone. We don't know exactly what the issue was. Probably a a common thing would be that something of hers was stolen and they refused to give it back or pay her for it. Or someone damaged something of hers and they wouldn't make restitution for it. We don't know what the issue was, but because she is a, a widow and because she has this low status in society and not a lot of resources, she has very little influence legally. She can go and plead her case to the judge, but there's no reason he has to honor that. Typically what would happen in in this society is a brother or an uncle or a father would come with her to represent her in court and demand justice on her behalf. And the judge might listen to the man in her life instead of her. It's an awful situation for her, but what we need to understand is, is where is this widow coming from? The fact that she doesn't have anyone coming with her to represent her and help her means she is really all alone. She does not have any support. It is just her coming and begging for justice. And because she is in such a helpless situation, this is probably why her enemy, whoever this is, doesn't feel they need to make amends. What is she going to do about it? She's just a widow. She doesn't have any standing here. She has no status here. She has no influence. What is she going to do? They can just keep whatever they stole or not worry about whatever they damaged. And it doesn't make a difference because she's a widow. And she doesn't have any family that's supporting her or representing her in court. The judge probably feels the exact same way. Why would he rule in this widow's case? Why would he make whoever her enemy is upset at him? Why would he do that? Again, he's not fearing God. He's fearing people. He wants to please people, not God. He's an unjust judge. But why would he care? No one's representing her. She's probably even viewed as a burden to her family. So why would he rule on her behalf? Now, I want to be clear about one thing here. The judge is not supposed to side with the widow because she is poor or a widow or oppressed or in some kind of marginalized group. That is not at all what the Bible teaches. He's supposed to rule on her behalf because it's the right thing to do. Jesus makes that clear. She is right in this case. It's justice. But with with God, there is supposed to be no partiality in justice either way. 
It's not this idea if you're part of an oppressed group, then you get better treatment than someone who's in an oppressor group, or then you can do things that are wrong and it's okay for you. That is not what the Bible teaches. And we know this because in Leviticus 19, the law says, do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. In other words, justice must be based on truth and evidence and what is real. Not just on whether someone is part of an oppressed group or whether they're poor or whether they're rich or wealthy or favorable, whatever it is, you have to find out the truth. And you make your decisions and your judgments based on that. Not because she's a widow, not because she's poor, any of those things. In fact, her enemy may be a widow. We don't know what the situation is. Now, something that really struck me about the judge in this story is that he is actually presented as being fairly self-aware. He knows what he's doing. He knows why he's doing it. Look at verse four. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people. This guy knows himself pretty well. He is well aware of his own bad motivations. I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because now he's had a change of heart and he's a great guy and he wants to do the right thing. No, because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. So this guy is a bad judge with bad motivations. He's going to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. He's going to give her justice. He will order the other person to give her back what they stole or pay for the damages or or whatever it was. Not because he's had a change of heart, not because suddenly he found his empathy and he's going to do the right thing, but for very selfish reasons. She's wearing me out with her constant requests. That phrase, she's wearing me out, that was actually a fighting term in in the literature of the time. This is what's used of fighters, boxers who would fight against each other when one would wear down the other. It's exactly what happened with Mike Tyson. He got wore down by Kevin McBride and he couldn't go on anymore. And that's what happened with the judge in this case. He's saying, she's beaten me down. I give up. I quit. I quit just for a little bit. I'm gonna stop being an unjust judge. I will give her justice because she's worn me down. I I will stop ignoring her. What Jesus says next is really fascinating to me. Because I would assume at this point, given Luke's preamble, that this is about teaching us to always pray and never give up. I would assume that Jesus is going to say, okay, now be like this widow. You see what she did? That's what you guys need to do. Be as persistent as she is. Just keep on going, keep on going. That's not what he says. What does he say? He says, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Wait, you want me to learn from the bad guy? That's the point of the parable. I'm supposed to learn from the bad guy. The unjust judge is the one that I'm supposed to look at and go, I'm going to learn from this guy. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's the lesson. Even he, the bad judge, rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? What's going on here? This is another example of something we have seen throughout this series, Uh, a parable form called from the light to the heavy or from the lesser to the greater. Sometimes the words that are used is how much more. So what Jesus is saying here is that if even this corrupt judge can be badgered into making a just judgment, how much more will God give justice to his people? And here's what's important to understand about this, that that people mess up a lot of times about the parables, and this parable in particular, the judge is not God. 
God is not the judge in this story. The judge is an example of a bad leader who can finally give justice just to point out that God who wants to give justice is definitely going to give justice. If even this guy who is so bad can be badgered into being a just judge, then God who is good and wants to be just and is nothing like that judge, of course he's going to bring justice. The point is that God is a just God. And if even this bad guy can be just, how much more will God be just? I want you to try for a moment to put yourselves into the mindset of a first century Jewish person in occupied Israel. The Romans have overtaken them. They've conquered them. They've oppressed them. And when Jesus is talking about God surely bringing justice quickly for his chosen people, what do you think pops into their mind? Let's overthrow these Romans. Simon the Zealot is out there listening and going, now he's speaking my language. Yes, Jesus, we want God to come and bring justice for his chosen people against the oppressors. This is, this is finally what we've been waiting for you from, from you. But then Jesus takes it in a totally different direction. In the very next verse, in verse 8, he says, I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? See, what's happening here is Jesus is not just thinking of justice for Israel right now with Rome. He is thinking of the future time, a much bigger, broader picture than what the people in the story have in mind. God will bring justice. It's not gonna happen anytime soon from our perspective, but from God's perspective, he will bring justice quickly. And when that happens, Jesus is saying, when Jesus returns, the son of man is a phrase that Jesus used for himself. How many will he find then who have faith? This is way bigger than Israel and Rome. So what is Jesus talking about? There are two places in the New Testament where we can go to find out about the justice that God is going to bring in the future. The first one is Revelation chapter six. Revelation chapter six. In Revelation, you probably know John has a vision. In this vision, one of the things he sees is a scroll with seven seals. And as these seven seals are opened by the Lamb of God, which is Jesus, opening those seals one by one, the first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's not just a thing from movies. That's a real thing from the Bible. The four horsemen from the, of the apocalypse are in Revelation chapter 6. He opens these seals, and then he gets to the fifth seal, and here's what happens. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us. Then a white robe was given to each of them and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus who were to be martyred had joined them. This is a really fascinating glimpse into heaven, isn't it? There are all these people who have been tortured and killed for their faith in Jesus and for representing him in this world, and they're crying out for justice. They want to see justice. They want to see the wicked people who have done horrible things to them and to other Christians be punished for what they have done. And what what they are told basically is justice is coming, but be patient. Justice is coming, but be patient. There's another example in 2 Peter chapter 3. 
In 2 Peter 3, verse 3, we read, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. So these are people that are mocking Christians for their beliefs. And obviously, Peter has in mind here that there's going to be some time that passes from his time to when Jesus comes back. Enough time where people are going, is that really true? Is that really real? Is Jesus really coming back? I mean, we've had 2,000 years now where we're going, okay, when's it going to happen? It's been a long time, Jesus. Thought you were coming quickly. Thought you were coming soon. Verse 8. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. And a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. While you're waiting for these things to happen, they're not gonna happen right away. In fact, from your perspective, it might be a ways off. Justice is coming, but be patience. God will make everything right. He will punish wicked people. He will restore a new heaven and a new earth to be filled with the people who have faith in him. And from his perspective, he will do this very quickly. It's going to happen soon. But by the way, a day to God is like a thousand years to us. The last 2000 years between us and Jesus Christ is like two days to God. Do you remember what you did two days ago? If you think really hard, you can probably remember most of what you did two days ago. It wasn't that long ago from your perspective. That's how God views the time between when Jesus was here and today. And we think from our perspective, how long, oh Lord, how long is this gonna take? Wow, this is a long time. And from God's perspective, what this is telling us is basically that God is outside of time. We can experience all of these years and to God, it's like nothing. My kids love to play board games. And we like to play board games together as a family. Here's one we did last week. Uh, this is called King of Tokyo. Have you ever played King of Tokyo? It's a really fun game. Great, great for kids, but all, all ages kind of. And uh, here's one of the characters that comes with a little gorilla monster kind of guy. You're, you're fighting in Tokyo and you're battling with your monsters and taking damage and all this other stuff. And it's a lot of fun. When my kids play these games, I am usually thinking a few moves ahead of them. Not because it's really going to help me win necessarily. We play a lot of games of chance so anybody can win, which, eh, you know, uh, games of skill are so much better. But the kids love the games of chance. It's anybody's game, right? And we will get to a point in in a game where they are so frustrated and overwhelmed because things aren't going their way. And you know, sometimes with these games, how you you can just see the frustration on the kids' faces. They get one bad thing after another and just, ah, this is terrible, this is a stupid game. Just want to throw the board across the room. And some of you feel that way about life, right? Just throw the board across the room. I'm done with this thing. Why are we even playing this game anymore? And in that moment, on that turn, from the kids' perspective, everything is going wrong. Everything that could possibly, I lost this and I lost this and I didn't have this anymore and this didn't work out and I wanted to do that, but then she took it first. It's awful. And I, as the adult in the room, am looking at the board and thinking, yeah, but I can see what's gonna happen 
in the next few turns. And I know that this is going to happen with this person, and this person's probably going to do this, and this is going to happen with this person. And by the time it gets back around to you, you may just win this thing. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you can see that with these games and you realize what you think is a horrible turn is actually going to work out really, really well for you down the road. And you just can't see it because of your perspective. You're living in the turn and I'm seeing the game. And as as followers of Jesus, we are living in this day not perceiving what's going to happen next week or next month or next year or in 10 years, but who does? Our Heavenly Father is thinking so many steps ahead of us. The reason why I want my kids, well, let me explain this. When my kids are so frustrated and I can see what's going to happen to them, there are two things that I can do. One thing I could do is I could just sit them down and say, hey, let me tell you what's about to happen. He's probably going to do that. She's probably going to do that. You know, this is, this is what's going to happen with all the pieces on the board. By the time it gets back around to, around to you, you'll be in a position to win this thing. I could do that. Or I could encourage them to be patient and encourage them to just play the game and to stick with it and to not give up and to not storm out. Why? Because I want them to develop character. I want them to grow as a person. I don't want them to just know what's going to happen so they stay in it. I want them to be able to do hard things. I want them to stick with it because that's a character trait that's not just for the board game, but it's for life. Because if it's important for the board game for you to stick with it and not give up and not throw the stuff across the room, then it's really important for a school project. And it's even more important for college. And it's even more important for a job. I want you to learn to be a responsible adult who can stick with things even when it's not going your way, even when you don't understand what's going to happen tomorrow, even when you don't know the future, which we never really do. I want you to learn to do that. That's a part of developing your character. Doesn't God want to do the exact same thing with us? He could tell us exactly what's going to happen. He's thinking several steps ahead of us. He knows what tomorrow holds. He knows what 10 years from now holds. Could he reveal to us everything that's going to happen? Yes, but it would do nothing to develop our character. God knows how this will all end. He knows all the details between now and then. But he's not just going to reveal it all to us. He wants us to grow. He wants us to develop. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to have faith. And that's what this all comes back to. My kids need to learn to trust me even when they don't understand what I'm telling them. If I'm telling them that they should stick with it and stay in the game and not give up, It's not just because I want to finish the game with them. It's because I want them to learn and grow. And this is going to be helpful for more than just that game. They need to learn to trust me. If I tell them that they shouldn't do something and everything in them tells them that's a good, fun thing to do. And I say no, because I know something they don't about the dangers of that or what that could lead to. I need them to trust me. Our Heavenly Father is the exact same way. He wants us to learn to trust him even when we don't understand how things are going to play out. Even when everything is crumbling around us in our lives today, I don't know how I can move on. I don't know how I can keep doing this, Lord. I know you've asked me to do this thing, but I can't keep doing it. I know you want me to do this. I've read this in your word, but I just don't feel like doing it anymore and I'm ready to give up. And he wants us to learn to trust him. Even in those moments where nothing seems to be going right, he wants us to trust him. Jesus knew what the disciples were about to go through. They didn't. He knew that they were about to go through some of the most difficult challenges of their lives. And they would experience incredible injustice. They would experience incredible oppression. Many of them would actually be martyred eventually. He's not telling them that right now. 
but he knows that they're about to face some very difficult things and he wants them to learn to have faith and to trust even when they don't understand what's going on. God will make everything right. They have to have faith in God. He might not do it today. He might not do it tomorrow, but it will be soon from God's perspective. Justice is coming, but be patient. Don't give up. Luke says at the beginning of this parable that he wants the disciples to keep on praying and never give up. This has caused some people to take this parable to mean that if we want something from God, all we have to do is be really, really persistent about it. Like the widow, learn a lesson from the widow instead of the judge. And and we need to just nag God into giving it to us. I mean, they'd never put it that way, but I mean, let's be honest. You just got to keep asking and asking and asking and eventually he's going to give it to you. The problem with that kind of thinking is that this parable is not about asking for a new house or a new job or a car. Not that those are wrong things to ask for, but the idea that we can just pester God into giving them to us is not what this parable is all about. This is about making right a wrong. This is about bringing justice for something that has actually been done that is evil. Jesus says in Matthew 6, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your father knows exactly what you need before you ask him. And in this parable, prayer is not this magic repetition prayer thing that's gonna somehow get you what you want. Prayer is evidence of a strong faith in God. The one who lacks faith in God stops praying, stops asking. The one who isn't really sure if God is gonna make good on his promise, if he's gonna set things right, if he's gonna bring the values of heaven to earth, this is what Jesus told us to pray for. He told us to pray that God would bring the values of heaven to earth. This is in Matthew chapter six again. In verse 10, Jesus said, pray, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what that means, to bring the values of heaven to earth. May your will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. And we we believe God that you're gonna do that. But we're still supposed to pray for it. Not because we don't think you're gonna do it if we don't, but because we wanna see it happen. We wanna see it happen soon. We wanna be a part of it. We're excited for it. We're eager for it. We know that you will. God is not an unjust judge who has to be coerced and badgered into doing the right thing. He's going to do it. How much more will he do it? You can bet your life on it. And many of the disciples did. They lost their lives having faith that God would set everything right, that they would be with him, that justice would be done. And so we can keep trusting in him and we can keep talking with him and we cannot let what seems like a delay to us get us discouraged to the point where it weakens our faith to the point where we don't do the things we know he wants us to do to the point where we give up on, and I'm not just talking about salvation here. I'm talking about all the things that God wants us to do in our life and you know what they are for you. How's your relationship with him lately? Have you given up on that because you've been discouraged? How's your prayer life? How's your time in the word? How's your ministry to other people, serving other people? How's your generosity? All these things that the Bible tells us, this is what I want you to do. These are all expressions of our faith in God. We have faith that he's gonna take care of us. We have faith that he's gonna do what he says he's going to do. And so I'm gonna live for him because one day he's gonna come back and he's gonna take me with him and my eternity is gonna be spent with him. And everything I do in this life has some impact on that. And if I believe it, I'm gonna do something about it. This is all about having faith in God. And so Jesus says, how many will I find when I come back who have faith on this earth? That's what he's talking about. It is so easy to get discouraged. 
when we see what's happening in the culture around us, when we see the decay, when we see politics, when we see social media, when we see the news, it is so easy for us to just say, man, I'm done with it. I don't want to live out my faith in this world. It's too hard. I just want to kind of, you know, go under the radar and, you know, not really talk to people about that. And, and yet we have to have a strong faith. God is going to set everything right. He is going to bring justice, but we do need to be patient and we need to live with a strong faith for him in the meantime. Keep trusting in him. Keep talking with him through prayer and don't give up. Let's pray about that for a moment. If you just bow your heads with me, talk to the father right now. God, you have given us this incredible responsibility to be your representatives here on this earth. And there are so many times when being your representative can be discouraging. And you knew that was gonna happen. You knew it was gonna happen with the disciples and you know that it happens with every one of us. There are moments where I get discouraged and I just feel like giving up. And I'm sure that's true for a lot of people here. We have to have faith that you are a just God and how much more will you bring justice? You will set everything right. You will make everything the way it needs to be. And so God, help us to live in that reality, knowing that even if we have to wait a a long time, you are gonna bring justice. You are gonna make everything right. You are going to take us home to be with you if we've trusted in you as our savior. And so help us to live the right way here and now. And Lord, for those things that we have been struggling with, that we've been feeling like giving up, that we know are good things that you want us to do, help us to have the courage and the boldness to stick with them, Lord. Help us to keep on moving forward. Give us your strength. Reveal to us how you want us to live. Help us to not get caught up in this temptation or that temptation or or distracted by what's popular in the world, Lord, but to stay focused entirely on you by having regular prayer with you, by believing everything that you said about what you're going to do. Help us to live for you fully. It's in your name we pray.